Our second reading this morning is from Numbers chapter 21. I will read verses 4 through 9. Hear the word of God. The Israelites left Mount Hor and traveled on the road that goes to the Red Sea. They did this to go around the country of Edom, but the people became impatient. They began complaining against God and Moses. The people said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt? We will die here in the desert. There is no bread and no water, and we hate this terrible food. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people. The snakes bit the people, and many of the Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We know that we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord. Ask him to take away these snakes. So Moses prayed for them. The Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze snake and put it on a pole. If anyone is bitten by a snake, that person should look at the bronze snake on the pole. Then that person will not die. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when a snake bit anyone, that person looked at the bronze snake on the pole and lived. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, may our eyes be on you this morning, for you uh, are the resurrection and the life. You are the good shepherd, you are the great physician, you are the word of God, you are the waters of life. We have nowhere to turn but to you. We pray that you would be present with us in the proclamation of the word, and we ask that you would be honored and glorified in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So two weeks ago, as we were looking at the ashes of the red cow in Numbers chapter 19, we asked about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the law and the gospel. Since we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, what is the purpose of the law of Moses and of the Old Testament for us as Christians? Is the Torah inspired by the Holy Spirit? Is the Old Testament truly the Word of God for us? Or is it just an interesting antiquarian document? Throughout the history of the church, there have been marginal individuals who have suggested that some parts of the Bible are more truly the Word of God than other parts. Probably the most famous of these heretics was Marcion, who lived in the second century. He threw out the entire Old Testament. Our friends up the street, the Swedenborgians, throw out all of the letters of Paul. There's a variety of this heresy throughout the history of the church. Of course, it's a little crazy for followers of Christ to throw out the Old Testament Because Jesus loved the God of the Old Testament. Because Jesus spent endless hours 
in prayer with the God of the Old Testament because Jesus called the God of the Old Testament Father. If we love Jesus, then we will love the things that Jesus loves. And one of the things that Jesus loved was the Torah, which is why when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he explains to this Pharisee who he, Jesus, is by citing the passage from Numbers chapter 21 that we read this morning. Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, of course, would have known the book of Numbers forward and backwards. And if we want to understand who Jesus is, then we must understand the book of Numbers also. So I'm glad that you're here this morning as we continue our series of sermons through the fourth book of the Torah. Two weeks ago, as we were wrestling with that question, what is the purpose of the law and the Old Testament for Christians, we looked uh, to the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, written in 1647. The Westminster Confession is the theological statement that governs our denomination, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It also is used in many other Presbyterian and Reformed churches. In chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession, we read, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel ceremonial laws, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits. And then it goes on to say, all the ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. So, the laws concerning uh, uncleanness are abrogated for us as Christians. The laws concerning the ashes of the red cow are no longer in force. And the law concerning this bronze snake lifted up on a pole, all of that is in the past. But that doesn't mean those things are no longer important to us. They continue to prefigure Christ for us. They continue to give us a, a picture of Christ. And for that reason, we treasure them. Now I want to talk a little bit about literary theory here, and then I want to dig into our passage. Every piece of literature, every poem, every short story, every novel, every movie, every song, every symphony, every play, every musical has a narrative arc. It starts in one place and it ends up in another place. The beginning and the end are tied to each other, are related to each other, are somehow images of each other, but between the beginning and the end, there's a bunch of stuff that happens. And what we begin with grows and changes and is polished until it gives us what we have at the end. The things at the beginning and the things at the end are, in a sense, the same thing, the same characters... But because of the events that have transpired along the way, between the beginning and the end, there's a transformation that happens. That path that the story travels is called the plot or the narrative arc. If someone asks you what a book is about, if they ask you what a poem means, they are asking about the narrative arc, the events that tie the beginning to the end, the events which transform the characters along the way. So we can ask, what is the narrative arc of the Bible? What does the Bible as a whole mean? 
Of course, there are many individual stories in the Bible, the Tower of Babel, David and Goliath, Esther rescuing the Jews, the shepherds visiting baby Jesus, Paul and Silas in prison, lots and lots of stories that we know from the Bible. But what is the whole Bible about? One good way to describe the narrative arc of the Bible, and this is not my idea, other people have said this, is that it contains four stages or steps. Number one, creation. Number two, the fall. Number three, redemption. And number four, restoration. So let me walk through those. Creation, God creates the universe. He creates us in his own image to inhabit that universe. For a while, we have perfect communion with God and with each other and also with the physical universe. All is well. Things are as they should be. Things are the way God intended them to be. Of course, the universe is not self-created. The universe is not an eternally existing random assemblage of matter and energy. The universe is a purposeful creation out of nothing by a wise and powerful God who is not himself part of the universe. Pagans who worship things inside of the universe are half right. They at least recognize the goodness and the beauty of things in the world, but they're wrong because they praise the work of art without praising the artist. So we begin with creation. But then the fall happens. Sin enters the world and disrupts the creation. Our easy communion with God is interrupted. We run away from God in shame and fear. God puts an angel with a flaming sword between us and the tree of life. Our cooperation and fellowship with each other is replaced with competition and combat. In the very first generation, we have envy and jealousy and murder. And our stewardship of the physical universe, which, by the way, includes stewardship of our bodies, becomes twisted. We begin to exploit rather than to care for the creation. We exploit creation, we, including we exploit our bodies, when we think that we own the world or that we think that we own our bodies. When we think that we can use what God has made for our own pleasure and not for his glory. We are stewards of creation. We are stewards of our bodies when we realize that the world belongs to God, that our bodies belong to God, and it is our job to take care of them and to use them for the purposes that God has in mind. Except for that first little bit, when we were in the Garden of Eden, all of human history has been troubled by the fall, with, by the consequences of sin. This has included alienation from God. It has included all kinds of misery that uh, we uh, enact against each other. And ultimately, it has caused our own death. So we begin with creation. We suffer the fall, but we look forward to the redemption. When the fall happens, suffering begins, and out of that suffering, we cry out to God. We ask for help. We ask for relief. The Bible tells us that the blood of Abel, the first murder victim, that the blood of Abel cried out to God 
from the ground. And so God in his mercy and in his love for this creation begins to redeem the fallen world. God begins to intervene to fix the problems of this world. And then restoration. The final goal of redemption is the restoration of the creation to God's original plan. God made things perfect in the beginning, but we got off track. Sin and suffering enter the world, and the goal of God's work of redemption is to restore things to the way that they were supposed to be in the beginning. The beginning and the end of the Bible's narrative are, in a sense, the same. The Garden of Eden was a paradise. And Jesus promised the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. The paradise of the kingdom of God at the end of time will not be exactly the same as the paradise of Eden. In a sense, the paradise of the kingdom of God is a grown-up, developed, matured by the school of hard knocks version of the original paradise. For one thing, the first paradise was a garden while the second paradise will be a city, which is good for me, because only in a city can you find used bookstores. Each individual story in the Bible can be mapped onto the Bible's overall narrative arc. Each story in some way is about creation, fall, redemption, or restoration, or some one or two of those things. The story in Numbers chapter 21 about the bronze serpent is a story about sin and reparation and, and redemption. It's not a story on the grand scale, it's just that, that story in one small situation. Here's what we read in Numbers 21 verses 4 and 5. The Israelites left Mount Hor and traveled on the road that goes to the Red Sea. They did this to go around the country of Edom. But the people became impatient. They began complaining against God and Moses. The people said, why did you bring us out of Egypt? We're going to die here in the desert. There's no bread and no water, and we hate this terrible food. This story begins with sin. And the sin in this particular case is the signature sin, the favorite sin of the Israelites in the book of Numbers, namely complaining. They have been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They have seen mind-blowing miracles that people still talk about today. They have received food literally out of heaven. But in spite of all of that, the people complain and they complain and they complain. We hate this terrible food. And so God sends snakes. And the snakes bite people. And a lot of people die. And then the people come running to Moses and they say to Moses, we know that we have sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord, ask him to take away these snakes. First thing I want you to keep in mind is, is that God does not give them what they asked for. The snakes remain. One question I want you to think about is, and I think this is the essential question, are the snakes a sign of God's wrath or are they a sign of God's mercy? 
Are the snakes a sign that God is angry with us and wants to hurt us? Or are the snakes a sign that God loves us and wants to heal us? Because all of us have snakes in our lives. All of us have circumstances and people who are filled with poison and with venom. This past week, a number of you have been bitten by some nasty snakes. You've been bitten by people who just seem to have it out for you. No matter how pleasant or agreeable or helpful you have tried to be. You've been bitten by circumstances that are bleeding you dry and that are wearing you out for no good reason. And it's not that you're unwilling to work hard. But sometimes it just seems like your hard work isn't getting you anywhere. Are the snakes in your life a sign of God's wrath against you? Or are they a sign of God's mercy? This is a fundamental question And we need to get straight on this. Some people think of Yahweh as the angry God of the Old Testament. The world is full of sin and God sends a flood to wipe out everybody but Noah and his family. The cities on the plain are full of sin and God sends fire and brimstone to incinerate Sodom and Gomorrah. And only Lot and his family escape. The Old Testament is full of disasters and plagues and wars that seem to be God's way of interacting with his people. The Old Testament God looks like a smiting God. The joke at Princeton when I was studying Hebrew was that if you didn't know a particular Hebrew verb, it was pretty safe to guess that it was smote. 331 times smote shows up in the Old Testament. The wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a great plague. That's Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers chapter 21, God smites the people. The sinning, complaining people. He smites them with serpents. But it would be a mistake... To think that the purpose of the smiting is for God to vent his anger. As if God had some anger issues that he was working on. The passage that we read this morning never mentions God being angry. And I say that because many times the scriptures do talk about God being angry. There's no mention of anger here with the snakes. It just says the people complain and so... In response to their complaint, the Lord sent some snakes. And when the Lord sends the snakes, something wonderful happens. The people repent. And they come running back to God. And if they've been bitten, God will heal them. The smiting leads to repentance. The repentance leads to a restored relationship with God. And the restored relationship with God leads to The healing of their bodies, which is a good thing. Now, the people may have come running to God, not because they love God or because they want God, but because they want what God has to offer. Sometimes we're guilty of wanting the gift and not the giver. Sometimes people want peace and prosperity and health that God offers, but they don't really want God himself. But if we come running to God because of the benefits that God offers, well, at least we came running to God. 
It's a start. God knows what we need above all else is to be with Him, to have a relationship with Him. We need that actually more than prosperity. We need that more than peace. And we need it even more than health. So sometimes God smites us to help us repent so that we can return to that relationship with God. Sin blocks the relationship with God. As long as we are hanging out in unrepentant sin, as long as we're saying, hey, this is just the way that I am and God better get used to it, as long as we are saddled with sin that we have not turned our backs on, then we don't have a relationship with God. For us to have a relationship with God, which is our number one need, for us to have a relationship with God, we have to turn from our sin. And sometimes God helps us do that by smiting us with snakes if he has to. Now, this isn't how it always happens, but sometimes it is. In Romans chapter 2, we hear about the exact opposite strategy. Paul uh, warns the church about taking God for granted. He writes, this is Romans 2, 4. He writes, do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? In 2 Peter 3, 9, we read, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise to come again, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Sometimes God's wrath, sometimes it's God's wrath, and sometimes it's God's kindness. Sometimes it's snakes, and sometimes it's patience. But in every case... The goal of God's action is the same. God wants us to have a relationship with Him. Of course, we are always free to choose or to reject God. But don't be surprised if God uses every trick up His sleeve to reopen lines of communication with you. He may may use kindness, but He might also send you some snakes. So what about the bronze serpent hoisted up on the stick? as a foreshadowing of the cross of Christ. In Numbers chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze snake and put it on a pole. If anyone is bitten by the snake, that person should look at the bronze snake on a pole, and and then that person will not die. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when the snake bit anyone, that person looked at the bronze snake on the pole, and they lived. That's what we read in the Bible. There's no uh, explanation of how the miracle worked. You just had to take God at his word. And he said it would work, and it seems like it worked. It's not as though you had a whole lot of other options. If you got bit by a snake, you'd look at the thing on the pole and you'd live. In John chapter 3, early in his ministry, Jesus speaks with Nicodemus, and he says to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now, of course, we know the next verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What we have to keep in mind here is is that this phrase, be lifted up, has a double meaning at the time of Jesus. 
It meant both to be praised or to be exalted, but it also meant to be crucified. And so Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus, already gives a clue about how he's going to die. Why does Jesus need to be lifted up? There are several meanings that attach to the cross in Scripture. Probably the one that we know best and the one that we think about most often is that the cross is the altar on which the Lamb of God is sacrificed as an atonement for our sin. That idea of the cross is connected with the Passover at which the Lamb is sacrificed to save those who smeared its blood on the doorposts. But in this place, in John chapter 3, Jesus says that he must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. While the death of Christ atones for the sins of the church, it is by faith in Christ that we actually grab hold of that atonement. If Christ were lifted up, if Jesus were exalted, if Jesus were crucified, and we didn't believe, well, we would still be lost in our sins and our trespasses. Jesus' death does not atone for the sins of those who don't believe in him. Okay? There are two things going on here. There is the death which produces the atonement, and the lifting up which produces the belief, but the belief is required to receive the atonement. In the cross, we have both the death of Jesus, which atones for our sins, and we have the public display of Jesus, which can lead to belief. Crucifixion, of course, was extremely cruel. It was done in public, For the purpose of striking terror into the hearts of those who witnessed the execution, people were executed on the sides of busy busy roads so that you'd see them hanging there, dying. As you walked by, it was a lesson to the people. From the Roman point of view, the public display of a crucified criminal caused the people who witnessed it to believe in Roman power. And to believe that the Roman law could not be violated without terrible repercussions. While Jesus had many disciples prior to his crucifixion, while they may have learned many things from Jesus about how to live a godly life, about the proper interpretation of the law of Moses, while they may have believed in him, it actually wasn't until the crucifixion and the resurrection that they actually came to know and to believe in the thing that would save them. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is pure law. It really is part of the Old Testament. It's all about how to live a life that's pleasing to God. And the Sermon on the Mount is far harder to keep than the law of Moses, so much so that some said to Jesus, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Let me be clear. No one has been saved by the Sermon on the Mount. Its primary function is to teach us that we have no hope in ourselves. It prepares us for the gospel. 
The gospel is not fully revealed until the resurrection, until the disciples receive the Holy Spirit and understand that the death of Jesus was an atonement for our sins. They weren't expecting that. Jesus is lifted up for them, for us. He died on a cross for them, for us. The atonement happened there, but in being lifted up, and here we have the double meaning, in being lifted up, Jesus also then became the object of belief. And it is by believing in Jesus that we grab hold of the atonement and grab hold of eternal life. There are so many layers to this image of being lifted up. The serpent was lifted up onto a pole so that everybody could see. I guess he must have been planted there in the middle of the camp, visible from a great distance because he's on a high pole. It doesn't make any sense to think that an unbeliever could look at the serpent and be healed from the snake bite. But anyone who trusted in Yahweh, who knew the command of Yahweh, that, that Yahweh had given to Moses regarding the bronze serpent, if they were bit, I don't doubt, but they would have raced to the pole and gazed up at the serpent in hope and in faith, knowing that they were doomed if God didn't come through for them, but trusting that he would. An unbeliever... Who was bit? Well, I don't know. I guess he would clean the wound and go back to his tent and hope for the best. Jesus says to Nicodemus, I'm like that bronze serpent. I'll be lifted up. And if you look on me with true belief, you will inherit eternal life. On one level, being lifted up meant that Jesus was hoisted up onto a cross to make the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. We would not be saved if the Lamb of God had not laid down His own life for us. But after He was crucified, Jesus was lifted up again. He was lifted up out of the grave. The death of Jesus would have been the end of the story of a great moral teacher if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. Other prophets had come and been killed, but Jesus came and was killed and then he was raised up out of the dead. He, was, he had conquered death. For 40 days, the resurrected Jesus appeared to his followers, and then he was lifted up a third time. This time he was taken up into heaven, where he was fully glorified, and he took his place on high next to the Father, and there he's interceding for us. Okay? Our salvation would not be complete if Jesus were not in heaven this morning pleading our case before the Father. Jesus continually pleads our case before the Father. And then finally, on the beginning, beginning on the day of Pentecost and continuing even to uh, the day that Jesus comes back, Jesus continues to be lifted up in gospel preaching. Every Sunday in this church and in a million churches around the globe, the name of Christ is lifted up. Jesus is displayed for us to see. Preachers do the best they can to lift high the cross so that everyone can see. Because if anyone looks on that cross of Christ with true belief, they will be saved. All of these kinds of lifting up were needed for me to be born again. 
Jesus had to be lifted up on a cross. Jesus had to be lifted up out of the grave. Jesus had to be lifted up into the presence of the Father. And Jesus had to be lifted up in the preaching that the Holy Spirit used to bring me to repentance and back to the Father. The preaching of the gospel is as necessary to my salvation as was the death of Jesus on the cross. Can you imagine a case where Jesus had died on a cross, but nobody bothered to tell me I would be lost? Every one of us in this room has been bitten by a snake. And I don't want to blame Satan for every problem, but everyone in this room has been bitten by a snake and the consequence of our fallenness is different in each one of our lives. You suffer in ways that are different from my suffering but all of us suffer and we have one of two choices. We can shake our fist at God and say, hey, this ain't fair. Why is my life so hard? You say you're God why isn't everything perfect in your world? You can be angry with God. That's one choice. But the other choice is that you can turn your eyes to Jesus, who has been lifted up for you. If you look on Christ with believing eyes, your sins are forgiven and your wounds will be healed. Sometimes God draws us near to Him by His sweetness. And sometimes God draws us near to him by his sting. And in each life, we get a little bit of both. But the goal of each is the same. God wants us. God wants us to come to him and to be with him and to have a relationship with him. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Lamb of God, and you were lifted up on that cross as a sacrifice for the sins of the church. And we thank you for those who have lifted up your name down through the centuries. We thank you for the testimony of Brother John to your life and ministry, to your death and to your resurrection. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would continue to draw the world to yourself, that you would continue to draw us to yourself. In you may we find the solution to our problems. Lord, may the sting of death be healed as we cast our eyes on you. May the sting of our disappointments be healed as we cast our eyes on you. 
May the sting of sickness be healed as we cast our eyes upon you. Lord Jesus, you are the breath of God. You are the word of life. And we pray that we would hear your word this day. We ask your mercy and your help. Lord, draw us to you. This we pray in your wonderful name. Amen.